everyone. Can I add to the welcome that Eric gave to you? Thank Eric and Robert, the orchestra, and you for being here this morning. It's good to join together and to share in praising God. And now we come to focus on his word to us this morning. He had an unusual name, Mr. Jeffcott. And he was the master in charge of P.E., physical education at the grammar school I attended. Although that's many more years than I care to remember, I still have preserved in my memory an image of Mr. Jeffcott. In the purple tracksuit he always wore and hung around his neck a whistle with which he summoned us to action or more often to attention when we weren't following his orders. What I never recall was seeing Mr. Jeffcott in action himself. Other than, lightly, I can still picture him, lightly jogging on the spot like this, as he instructed us on what we were to do and how we were to do it. Maybe in his younger days, he had personally demonstrated how to leap over pommel horses, clamber up climbing frames, swing off ropes, and a whole host of terrible things that we were expected to do. But somehow I can't visualise it. No, by the time I arrived in his class, PE definitely meant physical education, not personal example. While he could and often did say, follow my instructions, he could never say, follow my example. One of the key people in the spread of the Christian faith, way back in its beginnings in the first century, was a man named Paul. He was an apostle, that is a special emissary of Jesus Christ. A man with a brilliant mind, Paul was an outstanding instructor in the Christian faith. However, unlike my PE teacher, Paul was also an outstanding example of the Christian faith. He was, in fact, someone who practiced what he preached. And he never stopped practicing. A quarter of a century after his dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which had turned his life around, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi, one we've been studying over this year on Sunday mornings under the title, Shining Like Stars. And although these 25 years have involved incredible hardship in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul has not retired to take up a teaching post in a Mediterranean resort. No, he's writing from prison in Rome, where he's on trial for his life. And he assures the Christians in Philippi, as we saw last Sunday, if you were here, that he is still running hard towards the finishing line. One thing I do, he says in chapter 3, verse 13 of Philippians, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And so now he can go on to tell them, without embarrassment, not only follow my instructions, but, here's our theme for this morning, follow my example. 
And this morning, let's look a little more closely at what he said and why he said it, so that we can learn not just from his teaching, but from his example. You'll find what he said in the reading that was read for us by Robert, and it will help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. If you open your Bible, Philippians 3, we're just looking at these few verses from 17 to 21, page 1180, if you need a pew Bible. Everyone got it, yes? Good. All of us are influenced by the people with whom we come into contact. Maybe you'll stay behind afterwards. I hope you will. The coffee. You'll meet someone there maybe you've not met before. They'll shake their hand and say, Hello, you visitor, where are you from? You say, No, I've been coming to church for 20 years. Well, never mind. Don't worry about that. Um, first time you've actually talked to them. And the people that you meet make an impression on you. Either a good impression, a bad impression, or a little impression at all. And in fact, if you look at verse 17, Paul uses a word which expresses this idea of making an impression. Look what he says. He says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The word pattern, translated pattern there, is an interesting word in Greek. It comes from a verb which means to strike something or to beat something, so as to make a mark or an outline on it. It's the word used, if you know the story of the Gospels, do you remember when Doubting Thomas turned up and he'd missed seeing the risen Jesus? And he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I'll not believe. The word marks there is the same word. Pattern, unless I see the indentation. And Paul says that people who have met with the risen Lord Jesus Christ are marked by the encounter. Not physically with those claims of stigmata and all that business, but in how they live. Literally, it says, how they walk. Take note, he says, of those who walk according to the pattern we gave you. We are all of us making an impression by the way that we live. And Robert pointed out, he of course was the dentist referred to, if you didn't work that out. We make an impression on what we say and how we live. Um, in Greek and Hebrew, the idiom walk is used for behaviour. The way you walk is how you live. And Paul says that he and his colleagues and those like him had not only taught and told the Christian converts how to live in a Christ-like way, but had actually demonstrated what it was like in how they lived. They had made a Christ-like impression on the Philippian Christians. And so he tells his Christian brothers to be united in following or imitating his example of how the Christian family should live. And to take note of those who live or walk in a similar way. Look what he says, join with others, following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The word take note is actually the verb from the, from the, from the noun in those previous verses where he says, I press on towards the goal. The same, same root word. It means keep your eyes focused on something that you're heading towards. 
And Paul says to the Philippians, now, as you look around you, the people in Philippi, and those who are visiting your church, keep your eye and look out for those, spot them, who live according to the pattern that we gave you, who make the same impression on you that we did. Now, of course, there is a reason why he says this, and we're coming to the thrust of what he says here. He goes on to say, there are other people around in Philippi who walk or live in a totally different way. People whose lives are stamped with a very different pattern. And he is deeply concerned that these people, whose arguments, their teaching and lifestyle seem outwardly attractive, will make a bad impression on the Philippians. So he issues a strong warning to the Philippians, and it's a warning to us this morning, to watch out for those, now look what he says, look out, watch out, for those who live as the enemies of the cross. The word live there is the same word walk again. Watch out, he says. A strong warning. Watch out for those who walk differently. And he lists the character traits of these kind of people. How they live. And he says our whole focus is on earthly things. This life and all that it offers. Verse 19. And that's in sharp contrast to Paul and his colleagues who have a very different focus, verses 20 to 21, not on earthly hopes, but on heavenly hopes. Now, this is a kind of summary of where we're going this morning. But there will be two questions that arise out of it that I want you to think about, that I've been thinking about as I've prepared this. Two vital questions. One, what pattern am I following? Who's making an impression on me and am I following them? Secondly, following on from that, what example am I setting? And we'll return to that at the end. But let's try and look at these two different patterns, these two ways of living. He's almost saying here, there are two ways to walk in life. Be careful which one you follow and which one you live out. So let's begin with the negative one. If you look at verse 18 and 19, here is a pattern to avoid. Look at verse 18. Paul describes this as a very serious situation. For, as I have often told you before, and now say it again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, this is a persistent recurring problem. I've told you about it before. Not once, or twice. I've often warned you about this particular issue. This is not some new spiritual virus that seems to have emerged from nowhere, it's one that's been around a long time. In fact, it is the same virus that was spawned in the Garden of Eden, infecting our first parents and through them, all of their descendants, us, with the same symptoms. Not only is it persistent, it's also popular. He says many live as enemies of the cross. It's a very popular way to live. So who are these people that Paul is warning the Philippians and us about? It appears that while they were not members of the church itself, otherwise he couldn't have said earlier in the letter that he thanked God for all of them, they were having a dangerous influence on the Christians in Philippi. Probably they were visiting teachers who'd come to Philippi like Paul and his colleagues had all those years before. We cannot be sure. What we do know is how Paul characterizes them. Do you notice what he describes them as? He says, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's a very telling, significant 
description. He does not say enemies of Christ, though ultimately they were. Rather, he says, enemies of the cross of Christ. They're opposed to all that the cross of Jesus stands for. Some people think that the people he's talking about here are teachers from a Jewish background. The ones he described earlier, if you've been in the series, in verse 2 of chapter 3, as dogs and tells the Philippians to watch out for them. They're people who want Christians from a Gentile background not only to receive Christ and all that his cross offers, but then they have to keep all the Jewish laws and rituals and regulations if they're to be right with God. And if so, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Jesus means the end of all efforts to please God by your own efforts. The end of the old sacrificial system of the old covenant. There's now a new covenant in place. Nothing more can be added. And if that's who they are, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there probably aren't people like that around in many places in the world today. But there are certainly plenty of people in churches today who will tell you, yeah, the cross of Christ is important, but there's all sorts of things you've got to do if you're going to be put right with God. It's called legalism. It's adding to what Jesus did on the cross that our good deeds can help us find favour with God. Others suggest that they're not from that background, they're actually people from a Greek background, who taught that the body that we live in is basically inherently evil. So you can do what you like with it. It's only the spirit that's pure. And so they practice gross immorality. Didn't really matter, it's only this body. As long as your spirit's right, that's all that's important. And if this was the case, then they are also enemies of the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ doesn't mean you can do as you please with your body. It means when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you need to put to death the deeds of the body in order to live in a way that is pleasing to Christ. And again, such people are still around today promoting not legalism, but what we call license. Whichever of these may be correct present in Philippi. The proponents of both legalism and license are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so are all people who shift the focus of the Christian faith away from the cross of Christ. So people say, oh, I try and follow the teachings of Christ. Aren't they wonderful? I admire the life of Christ. But I'm not too sure about this business about blood and sacrifice. And you know those long words like substitution and propitiation and expiation. It's all too complicated. It's just a simple matter. And so the focus has shifted away from the cross of Christ. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. But if you are not a friend of the cross of Christ, then you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. And ultimately, you are an enemy of Christ himself. For all that Christ is and did is fulfilled in the cross of Christ. That's why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Greeks think it's stupid. Jews think it's offensive. But to us who believe, Christ the power, the wisdom of God. The cross of Christ is fundamental and central. And where the cross of Christ is not your focus, then you shift to other things. Paul goes on to say, if you look at verse 19, that these people are in grave danger. 
and so are the people who listen to them and follow their pattern of life. He describes four characteristics. Do you notice them? Verse 19 talks about their destiny, their God, their glory, and their mind. Very briefly, he says their destiny is destruction. Some of them, the word destiny here refers to your final destiny. It's a word used in the New Testament that basically means what happens at the end of your life when you stand before the judgment seat of God. And Paul says, these people, they're heading for destruction. They're heading for hell. Or they may think, unlike Paul, that they've already arrived, but they haven't. And when they do arrive, it won't be the destination they expect. It's a word used of loss, of eternal ruin. The word destruction. It's a word used... Again, you remember a story from the Gospels where a woman came and broke a precious jar of ointment and anointed Jesus and Judas said this was a complete waste of money. The word waste there is the same word. Waste. Of course it wasn't in that case. But here these people will look back on their lives and their whole lives will have been a waste. A complete loss. And it will be an eternal loss an eternal regret for what might have been. Not only is their destiny destruction, he says their God is their stomach. Now this doesn't just mean that they liked eating, although probably they did. It means, it's a reference to stomach, to living only for the fulfilment of the physical desires of the body. Be they to do with any kind of appetite, to do with food or sex or whatever it might be. And anyone who owns a television set doesn't need to remind me to remind you about this subject. It summarizes so much of our society and what people today value. And in which we are promised fulfillment. This is the answer, physical fulfillment. But this God has a voracious appetite. Sinclair Ferguson comments, they needed to feed their God to keep him alive. And ultimately their real God is themselves. May even be referring to the navel here. One person writes, navel gazing, their God is themselves. Yet this they cannot, here's the next tragedy, they cannot see this. For in the reverse of moral standards, he says their glory is their shame. The things that they take pride in, that they value, that are lauded in our media as being the answer, will turn out to be absolutely useless and in fact a cause for shame. One of my favourite programmes on television is Antiques Roadshow. I just love it when someone goes along with some piece of bric-a-brac and the expert looks and says, how much do you think this is worth? And he says, oh, I don't know, I bought it for a quid down at the market, at the boot sale. And he says, well, I think you should insure it for £10,000. Just love that. What I also love, but I shouldn't really, is... When the person brings in the oil painting and he says, this is a family heirloom. You probably recognise the expert. This is by an old master and we've got it insured and I'm hoping, you know, it'll, it'll see my children into the next generation because it's worth a fortune. And the expert looks at him and he says, sorry to tell you this. It's a fake. It's worthless. Imagine the embarrassment, the shame, that's what he's talking about here. 
some of the things we, you and I, place value in that we think are so important. When we stand before God, the final expert, if you like, the judge of all men, he'll say, you know that thing you gloried in that you live for? It's just worthless. What a shame. What a loss. And this is summed up by the fourth thing. Notice what he says. Their mind is on earthly things. I don't have time to look at it, but you will know if you've been in this series, you can listen on the net if you like or get tapes of it. But so often this book is all about the mind. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Focusing your mind, we'll see later on, it's about thoughts in chapter 4. It's what you think about. What is it? You see, the real test of our lives is what do we think about in our off moments? Here's a good thought. Good thought, yeah. When you go to bed at night, what's the last thing you think about? When you wake up first thing in the morning, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? When you're looking forward to the things you're looking forward to, what is it that occupies your thinking that you say, that's what it's all about, can't wait for that, that's, that's really... Well, he says here, these people, their mind is on earthly things. A mind whose horizons are limited to this life and all that it has to offer. What a summary of our society. How many people live like this and die like this? And here's the crunch. It is such a tragic issue that Paul the Apostle cannot talk about it dispassionately in terms of those who live like this and the influence they're having on people like his, his Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi. He can't talk about it without being moved to tears. He says, I tell you now, I say even with tears, these people live as enemies of the cross. And I simply ask you this morning, if you're not following this pattern, if you're following Jesus Christ and the pattern we'll look at in a moment, what do you feel about when you see your neighbours, your relatives, your friends who live like this? And all that they value is going to be worthless on the day of judgment. Have you ever moved to tears? If we were, would we not be more active in evangelism and passionate about prayer? We really felt that. So we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the way they are, you know. How poor he says, I'm moved to tears that such people are around. When you see them propagating their gospel which is no gospel at all, through the media. Not moving to tears to see the harm they're doing to a younger generation, drinking it all in, taking it all in, living that way. This is surely a pattern to avoid. But there is another way to live. Notice what he says, there is a pattern to imitate in verses 20 to 21. As we've seen in verse 17, Paul urges the Philippian Christians to follow the example he and others have set by adopting the pattern of life that they not only taught, but also practices. Now in these final verses, he contrasts this pattern with those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. These are wonderful verses, these last two verses. Just for your interest, if you're interested, many scholars have spent hours dissecting these verses and believe that they're also a fragment of an early Christian hymn, like the one in chapter 2 that we looked at and that there are some close similarities in language between the two. I don't have time to look at it, and it probably won't help you greatly in a Christian life. Let's focus on what, it, what the point is. 
whatever the point, they're wonderful words of hope and assurance. After speaking about those whose minds, I love these verses, he says, look what he says, he says, their mind is on earthly things, and then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. But, in contrast, that's not where our focus is. Our focus is in a different place. The word citizenship here is only found here in the New Testament. But the people he was writing to would know what he was talking about for a very particular reason. It's, it's a lovely thought, this, and it, it's clearly here in what Paul is intending as he writes to the Philippians. Philippi was a city on Greek soil, but it had been placed by the Romans, designated as a Roman colony, an outpost of Rome in Greece. So it was governed as though it were on Italian soil. Its official language was Latin, not Greek. The laws of Rome were enforced within its walls. In short, it was a piece of Rome in Greece. There's a map on the screen if you can see it. But if I was miles away from Rome, in those days it would have taken weeks to get there. But all over the Roman Empire were these little colonies that were little parts of Rome throughout the Roman Empire. It was a commonwealth. Now Paul says, we Christians, we live on earth, but we really belong to heaven. We're governed by different laws. We are subject to a different king, Jesus, who rules at God's right hand. We belong to a heavenly commonwealth. Peter O'Brien writes, So writing to Christians in a city proud of its relation to Rome, Paul tells the Philippians they belong to a heavenly commonwealth. That is, their state and constitutive government is in heaven, and as citizens they are to reflect its life, the life of heaven. So how do we do that if we're citizens of heaven? How do you spot the difference so that you make a different kind of impression? Well, there have been all sorts of things that we've already looked at in this book. But here he focuses particularly on the future. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and therefore we have a future focus. He says, we're eagerly awaiting something. The word eagerly await is a lovely word. It's only used in the New Testament about things that happen in the future, about things that are certain to happen, and particularly something connected with the end of time after this life is over. That is the life of eternity. And here the focus is on someone and something that if you're a Christian, you should be eagerly awaiting. First of all, he says, we are eagerly awaiting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis is on the character and action of the Lord Jesus, a saviour and deliverer. Interestingly, the words saviour and Lord were reserved in the Roman Empire for one person only, Caesar. Paul writes into these Philippians says, forget it, Nero. We're looking to a saviour and Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only rightful owner of, the, of that term. The one who, when he was born, the shepherds were told, and he was born this day in the city of David, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And his work of salvation was begun at his first coming, which ended with his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven. And his work of salvation will be completed at his second coming from heaven with all the hosts of angels when he comes to rescue those who are in the outposts of the empire, living in those colonies on earth, 
and takes them to be with himself. He'll come as a rescuer to rescue them. So if you're a Christian, you're eagerly awaiting a saviour, your saviour from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? Do you ever wake up in the morning and say to yourself, maybe this is the day. Maybe today the saviour will come. Better be ready. Better be living in a way that pleases him. And Paul goes on to say, when he comes, you'll need something. If you're going to go from earth to heaven, what you will need is not a passport and visa and all that kind of stuff, and a little luggage. What you will need is a body that is equipped to live in heaven. And so he says, we're eagerly awaiting a saviour, and we're eagerly awaiting a body which will be like his glorious body. You see, God's plan, when you become a Christian, God's plan, maybe you became a Christian recently, it's great to see people come to faith in this church. Three people are being baptised next Sunday, come along and support them. But when you become a Christian, God takes you over and you're under new management. You know, like a failing shop or, you know, like Martin Spencer, something like that. And God puts all the resources in and he says, I'm going to transform this person and turn them around. And so... It's a work of transformation. It begins with your new birth. When you become a Christian, God comes to live within you by His Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not a Christian yet and you think, I could never live that kind of life. Of course you couldn't. That's why God has made it possible by giving you His Spirit. You're born again of the Spirit and He begins to transform your character, make you more like Jesus. There is a present transformation going on. Even as we are speaking now, God has got a long-term project for you as a Christian. His project is to transform you, to make you more like Jesus. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing. The word we saw is sharing the shape of Christ. Being transformed like Christ. How are you, share, how are you transformed in this life? Through suffering becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There will be a future transformation at the resurrection of the dead. It's a great thought, this. Take it from me, those who are younger. As you get older, you get to appreciate these verses more and more about needing a new body. When you're younger, you think, this body's great, and I'm going to really work on it. The older you get the more feeble and frail your body gets and begins to let you down, you know, you're hearing your teeth and everything else and all the bits and bobs and you think, this body's just wearing out. And sometimes your mind, those of us who have seen loved ones get Alzheimer's, you look at them and think, it's terrible. It shouldn't be. Ah, but if you're a Christian, you're waiting for a new body. What will it be like? Well, he says, it'll be like his glorious body. Like the resurrection body of Jesus. He was recognisable as Jesus, but he could do all sorts of things that you can't do with this body. You can walk through walls. It's a very physical body. He ate and drank. It's a body that won't wear out. I don't know exactly what we'll look like. I imagine we'll be in our prime. Whenever you imagine that was or is. Or is to come. <laughs> There's that wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul talks about this. We're coming towards the end. Just stay with me because it's great stuff. He talks about the resurrection from the dead. He says, it'll be a different kind of body to the body that we've had. So will it be with the resurrection of the body. The body that is sown is, sown is perishable. It will be raised imperishable, never wear out. It is sown in dishonour, stained by sin. 
It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And so he goes on towards the end of that chapter. I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of heaven, of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that an amazing prospect? That's what we eagerly await. But that's your choice. Focus on earthly things. Or look to heaven. A saviour from heaven, a body from heaven. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, well, who can do that kind of thing? You know, think of all those bodies that have been lost. Think of the ones that have been wiped out in, you know, Hiroshima or something like that. Terrible things like that. How is that possible? He says, the Lord Jesus Christ can do it. He's got the power to do it. He's the one with all power. The power that raised him from the dead will raise you from the dead. These are wonderful words. I repeat them around 15 to 20 times a year at the graveside or at the crematorium of a church member. For as much as it pleased Almighty God of his great mercy to receive unto himself the soul of our dear brother, dear sister, here, here departed, we therefore commit his body, her body, to the ground to be consumed. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. In sure and certain hope to the resurrection of the dead through our Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our earthly body that it may be likened to his glorious body according to the power whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. Or transmission. What a hope. What a prospect. What a tragedy not to have that hope to live for this life and for earthly things. There's your choice. Now, back to the final conclusion. Two vital questions. Which pattern am I following? Am I described in verses 18 and 19 or verses 20 and 21? Here's two tests. What is my attitude to the cross of Christ? Do I glory in the cross of Christ? Do I put all my hopes in the cross of Christ? Does, that, does my eternal... Destiny depend on the cross of Christ? Or in the words of the book of Lamentations, is it nothing to you who pass by? Heroic failure? And what is your attitude to the coming of Christ? Are you eagerly awaiting his return from heaven? Or do you have no confidence in his promise when he said, I will come again? Which pattern are you following? Maybe you've been following the wrong one all your life to this point. It's time to change course. God in his grace speaks to you and says, turn from that way. Follow this way. Second question follows from it. What example am I setting? Can I say with Paul, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? As Robert said, very telling, I'd actually got it written in my notes the same thing. If you took a video of my life 24-7, 
Could I say to you, right, Charlotte Chapel, come next week. We'll play it on the screen here and watch what I do and how I live, how I behave, how I react with my wife, my children and everything. Follow my example. Pretty telling, challenging thought, isn't it? Where will it show? It will show in your focus. Am I earthly minded or heavenly minded? When I was growing up, we used to say about certain Christians, used to be saying, oh, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly use. can't remember the last time it's ever said of a Christian in my hearing. Why? Because these days we're so earthly minded, we have no heavenly use. Only those who are heavenly minded are of any earthly use to God. Now the answer to both these questions, what pattern am I following, what example am I setting, is seen, and this is the conclusion, not in what I say, not even in what you've been taught in Charlotte Chapel, maybe some of us, for 50 or more years. No. The impression Christ has made on me, and I am making on others, will be seen in how I live. How I live. That's the challenge. Let's ask God to help us to heed it. Let's pray together.